What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressures from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG landscape, one topic at a time. I'm Chris Raddy, Senior ESG Credit Analyst. And I'm Shaheen Contractor, Senior ESG Strategist, and we are your hosts for today's episode. Today we'll be speaking with Rob Fernandez, the Director of ESG Research at Breckenridge Capital Advisors, and Tim Coffin, Director of Sustainability. We're going to dig into what the asset management industry is looking at when it comes to the climate transition, net zero goals, and also dig a little deeper into a topic that I find fascinating, but probably the hardest, which is the physical risk of climate change. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank yeah, it's you. great to be here. Thank you. So my first question, either one of you can take, but as asset managers who are you know, controlling the dollars, can you give me one climate trend or theme that you think is top of mind? And I apologize for the one, because I know there are so many. Either of you can start. You go first, Rob. Oh, sure. All right. Thanks, Tim. A, a key climate risk. That yep, just one. Just Sorry. one. I know it will be tough, but the, a key one that we're paying attention to is transition risk, especially for companies. So Breckenridge signed on to the Net Zero Asset Managers Pledge a little over two years ago, and by signing on, we we committed to managing and understanding that transition risk in in corporate corporate bond corporate securities. Uh, we did a lot of work to, you know, in anticipation and preparation of signing on to that pledge, and then have just done so much work since then. And our research team has been really a big part of that. Interesting. So I think uh, my answer to that would be disclosure. So I think disclosure for investors is uh, an increasingly important theme. Obviously, there have been great strides in standardizing disclosure and reporting, but that's something that investors. Um, are clearly focused on. Okay. So maybe I'll just jump in with then what kind of tools or, or, or what are, what are you using to try to manage this transition risk and and how are you combating the uh, kind of vagueness of disclosure right now? So, well, just for a point of clarity, Breckenridge is a fixed income manager, so we manage bond portfolios, and I think where we can speak to answer that question is kind of twofold. One. Um, on the municipal side, which is, uh, I think it's fair to say, the municipal market is very much on the front lines of climate change from a capital market standpoint, and then maybe also on the corporate side. So, Rob, do you want to start, since you've already touched on net zero, on, on the corporate side, and I can follow up on the municipal side? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so as far as data uh, and tools, there's just been a proliferation of, of data sets, uh, 
startup firms looking at providing uh, ESG and climate data to asset managers and to other interested parties. Uh, and so it's something that we've been paying attention to a quite, a, quite a good deal. Uh, as far as tools that we're actually using today, uh, there's a few of them. We, are, we have subscribed to an outside data vendor for emissions information and other related climate-related uh, analysis, such as a term called implied temperature rise, uh, projected pathways for, for companies. Um, so that's been a really useful tool for us. Another one that we've looked to is um, the organization Climate 100 Plus, or, or Climate Action 100 Plus, CA, CA 100 Plus, um, you know, global initiative around uh, encouraging companies to take action on, on managing transition risk. They have a benchmark um, that brings in outside information from firms such as Carbon Tracker that assesses a company's climate transition kind of progress and preparedness. And that's been a really great tool. It's helpful from an analytical standpoint and also from an engagement standpoint, which I know we're going to get into more later. And one last organization I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to is Planet Tracker. Uh, based in London, I think. They're doing really excellent analysis across a variety of themes, but one of them is, is climate transition, and they do really great and in-depth analysis on specific companies, which that's another really great tool as well. So just to speak briefly on the municipal side, um, I mean, I don't think it, it is a giant leap to understand uh, how climate is so material to the municipal bond market and to investors and to local governments. Um, but it's, you know, one of the things that has always been both a challenge and an opportunity in the muni market is how fragmented it is. You know, there's close to 40,000 issuers. It's a $4 trillion market. And so where do you find kind of disclosure and tools that can help you navigate uh, physical and adaptation and transition risks across public finance? And, you know, I would say that the important thing to emphasize is how sector-specific it needs to be, right? Because heat stress will matter in one community, sea level rise or drought vulnerability may, may matter in another community. Mm -hmm. And I would just make the point that our credit analysts who follow these terms would tell you that they really look at climate as a risk multiplier or risk accelerator in the muni market in that it's not necessarily an affluent seaside community that's suffering from sea level rise that becomes a credit concern. That community for the time being has plenty of access for capital to do the type of infrastructure improvements they need. It's really communities that are already showing some sorts of kind of credit vulnerability, where if you have a, you know, a singular economy where people can't work out for several days, can't work outside for several days a year because it's too hot, or if companies are moving away because there's not enough water, those are the types of things where our analysts are trying to find outliers. Um, both on the positive side and the negative side. And a lot of that is finding communities that are forward-looking and transparent um, and really building that kind of resilience. So, um, you know, I think that's – there's a lot you could unpack there because it is such a fragmented market. But I also think it's, um, it's also very much a part of where we will solve a lot of, of climate issues because we do finance so much infrastructure at the local level. And to the point about – different communities, climate is local, right? Right. Rob, I want to follow up on something you mentioned. You said, you know, so many startups with climate data. I yes. personally think there's information overload. But do you have a case study or, you know, example where some kind of useful data has actually pointed to either a 
climate risk or an opportunity for a bond or ev- or if not today what do you expect this to uncover in the future i guess oh yeah that's a, that's a great question so as far as uh, a specific case study so so like i mentioned we are subscribing to to uh, to a kind of a climate data package yep. and we using that data we created what we call a, a corporate tr- transition risk framework okay and it's a model that consists of about 10 different indicators that we're using to me- measure a company's transition preparedness um, and some of the indicators that we're looking at would be whether the company has a pr- an approved science-based target from the science-based targets initiative. Um, are they reporting to CDP or preferably, or, or in addition, doing a TCFD report? So we're scoring companies based on these metrics. Um, and so w- w- what we're seeing is that, um, oh, and then the last piece is that we have that score and then the analysts are also doing kind of qualitative analysis, looking at a company's corporate sustainability reporting, TCFD reporting to see, okay, have they set additional GHG reduction targets? How are they progressing on those targets? All that comes together into an analysis of a company's um, transition alignment. And we're using the IIGCC implementation guide for those alignment categories. So the best would be if a company is achieving net zero and currently, there aren't any companies in our investable universe who are. When you say achieving, you mean today or in today? F- okay, wow. today. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So that's real. That's really difficult to achieve. If, you know, using that term again, right. all the way down to um, you know not aligned. And so the companies that we're following are more kind of in the middle. That, are, that, that some are, are aligning, meaning they're on a net zero pathway. Mm-hmm. So I think that analysis has been really helpful to really focus in. Okay, this company, based on our scorecard, based on our analysis, also looking at that CA100 benchmark, is has has aligned. So, meaning they have set a net zero target, they have um, means to achieve it, they have a science-based target set. I mean, there's certainly lots of companies who have set a net zero target, and we're gonna. I know we're gonna get to this later, but then when you talk to them, they'll say, "Well, we know how to get there by 2030, <laughs> but after that." The technology's not there. We're hoping it comes. We're doing some investment to get there. but So this net zero target is more aspirational. So hopefully that provides a little bit of that um, yeah. detail that you're, that you're asking for, Shaheen. And, and may I just follow up with a point on the materiality of that alignment Please, yeah. that, that Rob is talking about? So if you think about it, I mean, it's really our analysts who cover the highest emitting sectors, right? So energy and utilities and the basics, because that's where the transition will actually be most material. And similar to my comments about municipal finance, we're really looking for outliers, both on the positive and the negative side. And you can see why you really would want to lean into those high emitters that are going to be aligning or aligned or better, particularly as you approach those interim target dates. So the investment thesis there really is that that's where you'll find resilience and be able to build portfolios that provide kind of the predictable, reliable cash flows that long-term investors, particularly long-term investors such as pension schemes and things like that, are really relying on their fixed income to provide. Okay. Thank you. I think you hit, you know, you kind of hit it on the head in terms of, you know, the aspirations to get to a certain level, especially from the from the corporate side. Um, and I, I think, 
you know, net zero goals are definitely, you know, top of mind in a lot of people's um, investment theses when they're when they're looking at you know some of these companies. But what is maybe one over the the longer term? Do you think there's other technologies that might be incorporated into, you know, what we're doing for net zero? Or do you have any thoughts on future technologies that could be out there? Because as you mentioned, it, we're not quite there. But do you, you know, like. Um, you know, kind of some of this carbon capture is big right now. You know, yeah. one of these top of my top of my mind anyway, where I've read recently about these huge carbon capture projects. But are there any other technologies that you're considering or, or thinking about in terms of a way to meet this net zero goal? Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly something that we're paying attention to. Is you know, new technologies that might be coming, and it's something that we talk to talk with companies about too when we engage with them. So, for example. Um, one sector that we engaged with last year was the utility sector, and, and especially uh, utilities that have a business in distribution of natural gas. And so um, in terms of scope three, uh, the natural gas that they're distributing to uh, residential customers or commercial customers, that's a big source of scope three emissions, the emissions from the use of that product. Um, so in terms of technology that these utilities are considering, which is really interesting, is blending hydrogen, maybe hydrogen that's been produced, you know, so-called blue hydrogen, which is produced using natural gas with the emissions from the natural gas that's captured and stored, or green hydrogen that's produced using renewable energy. A lot of utilities are testing how to blend hydrogen with natural gas, because hydrogen being a, you know, a zero uh, carbon source of energy with natural gas that is carbon intensive, maybe they can reduce the emissions from, um, from that natural gas being delivered to residential customers by mixing in hydrogen. But there's a lot of concerns about that. There's a lot of, um, uh, uh, there's a lot of utilities, or a number of utilities are doing pilots to see, okay, you know, how does, you know, can we blend hydrogen up to you know, 5%, 10%, 20%, with natural gas and safely deliver it to customers because it can be combustible. Right. And, you know, how is it going to, how will it, you know, how will a homeowner's uh, uh, oven that uses, uses natural gas, how will that deal with hydrogen? Yeah. So that's a really interesting kind of test case or technology that we're paying attention to is the use of hydrogen. Can I ask Rob a follow-up question? <laughs> so how you, in your previous answer, you talked about you know, how our analysts are, are looking at the alignment of companies towards the pathway to Paris or net zero. Can you talk a little bit about how the solutions that you just described would fit in to that assessment of alignment from perhaps a qualitative standpoint? Oh, and you, yeah. and you touched on engagement. Is that a helpful follow-up question? Yes, That's please. a good point. Yeah. Doing yeah. my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh, this is, All right, I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this is too tough. Can you make it a little easier? Um, so... I get, you know, part of what we're looking at is a company's progress in reducing its scope one, two, and three emissions. Scope three, in a lot of cases, can be the overwhelming majority of a company's emissions footprint. So if a company, if a utility is making really good progress and, and you know, innovating and finding safe ways to blend hydrogen with natural gas, their scope three emissions are going to fall, and maybe a lot. And so a, an analyst is going to be paying attention to that. And sh and will document. Okay, this is really great. This is gonna. This says a lot about the about that utility's emissions trajectory. You know, maybe that utility has set a net zero goal, and the, and this is gonna show that. Okay, yeah, there's real 
a meaningful way that they can achieve it. So I think it helps support the analysts' you know, alignment, right. uh, alignment assessment. It makes the point about qualitative assessment. And Important. again, we're yeah. bond investors, so what we're really doing is trying to raise our sight lines on the horizon and try and understand those factors that are going to be material, particularly beyond kind of maybe the next business cycle or credit cycle, because that's what our clients are hire, hiring us to do, right? To, to build portfolios that they can match liabilities with or rely on for cash flows. Mm -hmm. And do you mind if I mention one other technology that we're trying to pay attention to as well, just it. to elaborate briefly? You had mentioned carbon capture. Um, you know, related to that is carbon removal, carbon dioxide removal. Certainly has been growing and there's been a lot of attention being paid to that, uh, that sector, but it's something that we're also thinking a lot about, um, you know, a company like Microsoft, for example, has a really detailed carbon dioxide removal strategy where they're investing in early stage companies such as Direct Air Capture and other, other approaches to removing carbon dioxide. But we think in the coming years, that's going to become increasingly popular and an important way for companies to manage their emissions footprint. You know, decarbonization is the number one priority. They have to roll out, these companies have to roll out solar, wind, find ways to reduce their emissions. But there's gonna be hard to abate areas where it's gonna be very challenging. And so we're looking to see how companies are going to invest in the carbon dioxide removal uh, industry. Interesting. And I wanna get back to you know the net zero. You mentioned alignment, you mentioned a lot of these goals are aspirational. How does one analyze preparedness? Carbon ambition is, I think, an easier piece of that puzzle. You just, you know, you forecast their emissions out. But how do you actually dig into preparedness, whether they're going to meet those goals or not? Any, any tips or tricks? You know, we think, when we think of preparedness, we are looking at, like I guess I mentioned already, the, our corporate climate transition mm -hmm. risk framework. And we're looking at a, a number of data points. Uh, the quality of the targets that have been set. Uh, the what do you mean by quality? Like, can you describe? Give me examples. Oh yeah, um, you know, has has the company just set a net zero target? So they're, they're you know, are they going to be met net zero by twenty fifty? Maybe that's okay. all they said. Oh, so like an interim. But target. yeah, what is there an interim okay. target? Has an interim target been approved by the Science Based Targets Initiative? Um, for example, we feel like that's like a good housekeeping yeah. seal of approval for their, for their target. And then we're, we're, we're really paying attention to capital spending, capital expenditures related to the transition. You know, if a company um, has pledged to reduce emissions, but then they're not investing much to get there, then, you know, that would be concerning from a preparedness standpoint. Yeah. So I guess it's just trying to cut through you know, maybe some stated aspirations and stated goals to see if is there really substance behind it. Okay, that's good. Rob touched on um, IIGCC earlier in, in the conversation, and I think they really break it into kind of channels of, of what kind of exposure, what sort of track record do they have, what kind of targets are they setting, and then what sort of governance is in place. So those are kind of the high-level categories, and then Rob's kind of discussing the, the kind of the more mm -hmm. granular quantitative elements and then you add the qualitative aspect which is where you're really trying to make that quality assessment but also looking at investments and opportunity and capex and things like that and when you say governance in place do you mean who's overseeing that something, something yes like i that? mean you know who's 
is there, I mean, I'll let Rob add details if necessary, but, you know, is executive compensation tied to these, to these goals? Right. Uh, is there somebody on the board who is taking ownership and responsibility of this from a stewardship standpoint? Would you add anything to yeah, that? Yeah, that's a great example about yeah. the board. That's something that the Climate Action 100 benchmark calls out as one of their criteria. <clears throat> Excuse me. Has a particular board member been designated as the climate expert? You know, so we're looking for that. Some companies will say that, you know, the whole board is experienced in climate, but, you know, that's maybe questionable. So, so to Tim's point, that we're looking for that as well. Right. And then Tim kind of touched on, you know, some of the municipal work that, you know, you guys have engaged in. But how about a similar question there? How do you, you know, think about governance when it comes to municipalities and, and their preparedness for some of these future climate or their transition events? Well, I'll go right back to disclosure, I guess, right? So um, that's one aspect that you could look at. But I know our team also has a number of, uh, you know, factors that they will look at in terms of what sort of sustainability plans do communities have. So remember, there's a lot of different types of issuers, so it's going to be so specific, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, airports and hospitals, which kind of are on the balancing, you know, between corporate finance and municipal finance, but they're big, huge municipal bond issuers. And so what's a lot of the attributes that Rob might be talking about in, in the corporate bond market may be very material on the on for healthcare or for a hospital system. And I think for local communities, um, you just have to look at from, a, you know, it, you have to look so locally. Um, and obviously quantitative data is going to play an important role there as well. But just having forward-looking assessments, transparency, sustainability officers, sustainability plans, all of those factors can help really give the analyst a sense to understand the character of the town management and how forward-looking they are. And have you had situations where you've actively been like, this isn't going to cut it, and you've addressed it with some of these You know, I, th I think or? it's important to understand that we're looking at materiality. Um, of, of any kind of ESG factors, sustainability issues, sustainable business practices. Um, and for the most part, that just largely informs our overall credit assessment. So mm -hmm. there's no binary buy sell type of scenario that I know of. Um, you know, we follow over 3,000, close to 3,500 municipal credits. But I'm sure an analyst would probably say that a lack of disclosure or a lack of plans or maybe just drought vulnerability at no fault of their own may have informed a credit decision to be instead of maybe an A plus a single A or instead of a single A an A minus. Um, but I don't have a specific example besides that, just kind of the scenario that I can share with mm -hmm. you. Do you have anything you would add? Yeah, that's certainly happened, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, or we maybe we have passed on a new municipal bond deal, a transaction, because the analysts determined that the, the climate risk and the lack of preparedness kind of outweighs all other um, credit, you know, investment attributes. I mean, one of the most, I mean, just the obvious factor about municipalities is they can't move, right? So if they have a heat issue, they've got to come up with long-term solutions, whether it's, you know, trying to create a tree canopy in their downtown areas or heat, you know, address heat islands within um, historically kind of underserved communities within their districts and factors like that. So it's just a, um, it's not that it's more complicated, um, but it's a lot different than kind of the way we approach transition risk in corporate in the corporate bond market. Mm -hmm. But incredible, you know, in, it, certainly material from a credit assessment standpoint. I want to get into physical risk, and I know that's a at least for me that's a challenging topic. But maybe we'll start mm -hmm. with corporate. So, Rob, how do you 
evaluate physical risks when it comes to climate change? And you know, my next question is going to be, can you give me an example of a financial impact? So in terms of physical risk, it is something that we consider for, for companies in our investable universe, but we don't view it as the key, you know, going back to okay, that initial right. theme. For us, it's, uh, it's transition. And okay. it kind of speaks to where we invest on a corporate side. We generally invest in medium to large capitalization companies in the United States, you know, essentially the S&P 500, but we will invest in U.S. dollar denominated bond issuance from non-U.S. based companies. But generally, so the, the physical you think like diversified. It's more diversified. Yeah, the, generally these companies have big operations, lots of facilities. Right. They're sourcing, you know, the, from suppliers that in in many geographies, many locations, and if they're having trouble sourcing from one spot, generally they can source from right. you know the same what they need from a, a different supplier. So that physical risk, yeah, to your point, is generally diversified. Okay. Um, but we, but we do pay attention. You know, just. In terms of one kind of case study, we do pay attention to it um, in our engagement when it uh, when you know maybe kind of material for a specific sector. So we talked to a number of REITs, real estate investment trusts last year, based in the U.S. You know maybe they manage and own commercial property or apartments. Um, so we are talking to them about how they're thinking about physical risk, and we did that last year. So by and large, across our investable universe, it's not a priority, but we will dive in in certain sectors. And so one particular REIT that we talked to did a whole physical risk analysis across all their properties. They own big um, apartment complexes, develop and own across the U.S. And, you know, they, they highlighted how some of these properties were at risk, but they felt like generally it was well-maintained. So that, that was certainly a positive. And is that analysis common or it's far and in between where a company is doing this? Oh, it's, a gra- it's far and in between. Right. There, there would be, certainly be a leader. Right. Others, I think, they're just getting started, but realize that it's an issue. And there are, are there, in your research, um, certain sectors that you inherently just aren't that interested in because of their lack of maybe... Um, a transition plan, or are there certain sectors that you're really leading towards because of how well they're, you know, what's kind of the thought process there? Do you have certain sectors that you're really just not worried about as much? Oh, yeah. I mean, like Tim mentioned earlier, you know, in certain corporate sectors are much more exposed to that transition risk, you know, than others, such as energy, utilities, like I mentioned, autos, chemicals, basics. You know, generally from a a firm's philosophical standpoint, our, our investment philosophy has been that we have never looked to di- uh, divest or avoid any particular sector. You know, we manage approximately $10 billion in sustainable bond strategies, and we've never, it, ha- we've, we have, it hasn't been our focus to, to avoid any particular sector for maybe more elevated ESG risk. You know, we will, we will manage that, and it's something the analysts are focused on. If, an, if a client wants to screen out a particular company or sector, we can do that. And we've done that on a number of ca- occasions, and Tim can speak to that better than me. Um, but um, in terms of you know, specific sectors that we're overweighting or watching um, for transition risk, it was interesting. In the, in the energy sector, um, the integrateds, the ones that the large oil and gas companies that you know, do exploration, production, Mm -hmm. marketing, they have gas stations. We're seeing that they're doing more investing for the future 
you know, investing in EV charging stations, for example, solar, wind, um, hydrogen, biofuels, more of that's going on. Certainly they need to be doing a lot more. Mm -hmm. You know, personally, the, you, you can't compare the integrateds to just the exploration and production companies, you know, bigger ones like in the U.S., and they, we see them as really falling behind. You know, they're, they're not looking to, it, to invest in other potential future technologies. And Tim, I don't know if you have any comments on the uh, physical risk aspect, maybe for munis? Well, in either case, in, in, in municipals or corporates, I mean, I can't underscore the notion of materiality right. enough, right? I mean, it's really the foundation for everything we're talking about here. Again, we're really trying to improve risk-adjusted returns over the yes. medium to long term. I think on the municipal side, um, you know, it just becomes it, – it, it, it's again, going back to my opening comments was that the muni market really is very much on the front lines, but also that notion of, of climate really being a risk accelerator. But it's going to be so local, right, and so sector-specific, right? What is material to a water and sewer authority is going to be very different than what's material to – a school district or a library district, but yeah. it doesn't take a lot to of reach to kind of unpack how those can be affected, um, both by the nature of the sector, like where their source of revenue comes from. Is it property taxes, right? And what's happening to the value of property taxes if you can't get insurance for those properties, right? Um, or is it a ratepayer base, you know? And and what is the uh, what happens if there's not enough water for a water authority and they're they're just running around drilling drilling wells like whack-a-mole, right? That's just not a sustainable model, right? And public transportation, you know, what if you start running into situations where rapid transit or light rail is running into physical damages to the point where people can't use it? And um, so, I mean, you, it just takes a logical approach to kind of going down how all of those revenue sources can be interrupted. But when you think about like the the breadth of the muni market, so much of it is local general obligation bonds, which are backed by property taxes for things like schools and libraries, things that don't have their own source of revenue. And, you know, what is the, if, you know, a lot of these projects are financed over 20 or 30 years, right? And yet the properties are carrying, you know, property and casualty insurance that renews every year. So what are the long-term implications to those types of property values? And I think that's what our analysts are trying to stay ahead of, right? The muni market is a, inherently a very safe market. As you know, um, you know, multi-notch multi downgrades are incredibly rare, you know, there's, and, and you really do have a, an ability, both from a willingness and ability to pay to see far out into the future. But this climate is material in some sectors and in some regions more than others. But yeah. it would be, um, we would be tying one hand behind our analysts back if they weren't able to do this type of work. They really need to be able to, to, to look out beyond, further on the horizon. Okay. And when, I mean, you mentioned the muni market again with the general obligations, but what about with uh, actual labeled green social sustainability bonds? Have you, uh, done a lot with those and do you, do you give those a higher weight in the portfolio if it's an actual labeled bond than just a generic you know a, a conventional bond from the same company or do you do anything along those lines do you want to start Tim and then well, I'll, I'll, add on, I'll touch on a little bit I'll just say briefly um, we certainly have clients um, 
who love to see green bonds in their portfolios. Um, and, and the municipal market saw – In the like muni market as well. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure years. Massachusetts yeah. issued the first uh, the first green bond in the muni market. So like over 10 years home, ago. Hometown uh, plug there for Massachusetts. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, but I would say – you know, I'm not an analyst, so I, I get a little nervous speaking on behalf of our analysts, but I suspect that our analysts would rather see robust climate disclosure in an offering document than a green bond label on the front of that offering document, because that's really what matters. And I think that's what should matter to investors, too, including those investors who'd like to see green bonds. That's what I would say on the yeah, side. I think that's true, definitely true for on, for our corporate analysts. They're, they're, they want to see that really strong disclosure. Um but it, it's certainly a market that we've been p- paying attention to for a long time. Uh, we invest in uh, as a company in our uh, as in our in the first green bond in 2013. It was the International Finance Corp issued a billion dollar green bond over 10 years ago, and so we will allocate green social sustainability bonds, sustainability link bonds to our sustainable portfolios because, like Tim men- mentioned, clients love to see them there. They're great from a so-called ESG storytelling standpoint. You know, you can get some information from from the the impact report, assuming companies have 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 published those. And generally, they do if they're uh, um, adhering to the ICMA uh, green green social sustainability principles. Right. Yeah. Because sometimes just the disclosure is better if they have that label yeah. and they're putting out that allocation report, that impact report. You just get a little bit more disclosure on what the what the actual impact of that. Um, those proceeds were. Yeah, and clients like it. We like it as well, that transparency. And it's also a form of climate solutions, potentially, too, that would fit within the net zero strategy as long as that bond is financing you know, clean, renewable energy. I think that could be a real opportunity as well. And maybe to touch on engagement with companies. Mm. So Ravi mentioned you engage on physical risk to some extent, mm-hmm. maybe probably transition risk. I guess, what is the reaction you get from companies? Do they want to talk to you? Do they want nothing to do with you? And maybe what is a measure of success in an engagement? That Yeah, that that's a really good question. So we've been engaging with, with companies and municipalities for, for a number of years now. Um, and how we determine the, the themes or the topics that we're, we want to talk to companies about or, or cities and municipalities, it's, it's, it's a kind of a discussion with the analysts, the coverage analysts. So if there's a particular theme that they feel like it's really important to talk to you know, companies in their sector about, then that's something that we would, it will pursue, um, we'll dive into. And our, our number one objective when engaging and when having these conversations is to supplement our ESG research. Mm-hmm. We're generally, our focus is not on uh, pushing for corporate behavior change. Um, it's really about having kind of meaningful in-depth depth discussions with company management teams or, or municipal issuers um, about their ESG practices and sustainability initiatives and how they're looking to embed sustainability into their corporate you know, operating strategy as an example. But, but to your question, one area where we have been involved in pushing for, for action is in the CA100. Breckenridge has been co-lead investors on three U.S. companies in the CA100 list. So that means it's three companies out of the 166 lists that are the, you know, the largest 166 corporate emitters of greenhouse gases globally. So they're big companies 
big emitters. Um, and, you know, so we're looking for them to, to make progress in, in the three objectives within the CA100 around climate governance, emissions reduction, and reporting. And so to your question, an area where we've seen some progress in one of those companies is there's one that was kind of dragging its feet in terms of measuring and disclosing um, their scope three emissions. They finally did this year, which was, which was really great. We applaud. There's a lot more progress. You know, this company needs to make, make a lot more progress, but we were certainly excited to see that. And just by publishing that information, it sh really shed light on their emissions profile. Like I mentioned earlier, and as I'm sure listeners are well aware, that scope three emissions can be like a big, big part of a company's emissions profile. And, and we, and it was very clear that it, when they when the company published this report, it turns out it's 95 percent of their emissions are from the use Oof. of their products. Yeah. And that wasn't clear before. So it really helps from a transparency standpoint. So that was, we felt, was, was a good win. And our company's happy to talk to you? No, they? not always. Not okay. Does <laughs> not it put always. you in a different position as a bond investor with companies? Like, does that change the tenor of oh, those yeah. questions? Versus an equity holder yeah, yeah. who can file a shareholder proposal if they yeah. want to. You know, I, I haven't necessarily seen any real difference. I think, by and large, companies are are willing and open to speaking to bondholders because we're another important stakeholder, right. just like equity holders or anyone else. So we sure. overall, we feel that the conversations are very productive. Okay. I think, um, you know, for us, a lot of the conversations we have sometimes with clients is just about educating them on, as we've gone through, you know, all the different data sets, all the different things that are, are going on. But, you know, there has been some pushback. I wonder if you guys get some of the same pushback and maybe how do you overcome it or address it with some of the people that, you know, you're trying to educate on, on what you're doing? You're talking about the ESG backlash? Yeah. As it's been, right? it's kind of been coined that way. Um, so I, I would say a few things. Um, I think the I think as an industry, perhaps uh, we walked into a little bit of that criticism. I mean, so many products kind of got rushed out so quickly that there were a lot of um, there's a lot of dispersion, I guess, to use an investment term between kind of definitions of what sustainability and responsible investing and just and ESG investing means. But I would take a step back, and you know, one thing that I think is important to understand is that in the rest of the world, in the UK and Europe and Asia, I mean, the sustainable investing has really been driven by the kind of the fiduciary responsibility, right? And that these are pension schemes and sovereign wealth funds who really are trying to do as much rigorous due diligence on making sure that they're properly building kind of liability match, matching tools that will serve the beneficiaries over the long term. And so obviously integrating sustainability whether it's climate or even some social factors into research, is all about kind of fiduciary. And here in the States, I think, and I'm, I'm speaking obviously in kind of sweeping generalizations here, but I think a lot of the kind of the ESG movement and sustainability movement has been driven by mission-driven investors. So certainly faith-based organizations like ICCR, who has been doing this long before anybody, you know, going back to the 1970s. Um, but foundations and endowments, they really looked at ESG almost from through a, a mission alignment standpoint. And um, I expect that will certainly continue, but I I also believe that the fiduciary lens is going to become more and more prevalent. If you're sitting on an investment committee for an endowment or a pension fund, 
and you and this is exactly the type of topic you're supposed to be thinking about, right? Like you have managers and consultants and advisors who are helping you kind of allocate assets and things like that. And so you really, from a governance standpoint, are the are the stakeholder who is supposed to be taking the higher level, longer taking longer term looking view. And I think that actually is getting some traction. Specific to the backlash, quote unquote, over the last year, I think it has been effective in terms of kind of hushing some of the narrative, but I don't think it's actually have any sub, having any substantive impact on where capital is going or will go. Capital doesn't change like that. People may stop talking about it, but capital is going to go where capital thinks it should be and where it's going to be safest and where it's going to get those best risk-adjusted returns, regardless of kind of the banter at the political level. I guess I would echo what Tim said as far as um I would. I think the industry brought this a little bit on ourselves because of um, the, all the different terminology that was used to market different ESG funds, sustainable exactly. funds, yeah. and what does it mean in the end if this fund is ESG and this one's sustainable? And so, yeah. being able to really describe it well is important, and I think that has been a challenge for the industry. But there's certainly initiatives that are in place to try to yeah. improve that, like the SEC with their fund manager disclosure kind of guidance, which I'm not sure when that will be officially published. <laughs> and then uh, the CFA uh, Institute, uh, the ESG Technical Working Group, has their own you know, guidance that they put out to help asset managers describe their ESG process and communicate that externally. So I, overall, we feel like this is probably unfortunate, but maybe important scrutiny. Right. Maybe you're saying, uh, you mean that the sort of the bedrock has been laid yeah. regardless of some of this... I guess, noise? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. And you have all these managers, including ourselves, who have built up you know, ESG, ESG expertise and knowledge that that's not going anywhere. For many years. Yeah, for many years, yes. yeah. I don't have any other questions, Chris. Any parting thoughts or questions? No, I thought that was a great discussion about a lot of the risks that we're seeing and, and some of the ways to address them. So. Thanks, guys. First of all, it's a great podcast. You know, we really appreciate the content that you guys have been producing, and we're certainly flattered to be included in the discussion. So thank you for including Breckenridge. Yeah, I echo what Tim said. You know, it's a podcast that I listen to on the weekends while watching the, walking the dog around the neighborhood. So it's, uh, it's great to listen to and really appreciate being here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank and, you. And maybe some parting thoughts on, you know, is there anything you think we missed, any gaps that, you know, we think – we should have addressed. That's just research analysts. This is just food for thought for us. Well, one I was wondering about was just the, um, well, the net, maybe the net zero pledge. Okay. Yeah. I think Tim asked all the interesting questions that we missed, right, Chris? <laughs> no, that was good. No, I, uh, Shaheen, this is great. Yeah, this is this is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe to sum, sum it up, you can find more information on climate investments, net zero, and a whole array of other topics by going to BIESG on the Bloomberg Terminal, which opens up Bloomberg Intelligence, our research dashboard. If you have an ESG quandary or a burning question you'd l- uh, like to ask our BI experts, please send us an email at ESGcurrents at Bloomberg.net. Thank you, everyone.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.